I think a lot about loops and repetition. So like when I'm in the studio and I'm making sound, it's like, how do I take maybe five seconds of maybe even a 15 minute song and then you flip it and then loop it. You know, when you see, if you're to see the show, it really is focusing more so on this process of collapse and incompletion, of reverb and echoing. Welcome to Intention, a podcast presented by the Power Plant Contemporary Art Gallery, where we speak with artists about their art and practice. When we think of an archive, we often think of a repository of information sourced from documents, texts, images, and other data. However, artists have shown us that archives can be so much more. Yes, they are often physical sites filled with evidence of both historical and contemporary experience, but they can also be ephemeral and rooted in memory and shared narratives. Working across painting, sculpture, video, performance, and installation, Toronto-based artist Timothy Yannick Hunter engages with various media to experiment with storytelling. Using DJ methods of sampling, dubbing, and mixing, Hunter creates collages that bring images, sound, fabrics, and archival materials into an eclectic mix of ideas, objects, and histories that emanate from the Black diaspora. We might think of archival research as being logical and rules-based, but Hunter's practice demonstrates how research is in fact a highly creative process. Timothy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Hi, Neil. So let's jump in here. Your your artistic practice engages with a lot of intellectual territory. And I encourage our listeners to check out Timothy's website at trueandfunctional.com. It's a fantastic website, uh, which in many ways acts as an archive or repository for a lot of the material that you, you use in your work. You seem to be interested in social, cultural, and political histories, and you're also interested in referencing and, and paying homage to a vast range of sources and influences, both visual and sonic. And I'm wondering, in all of this, how do you navigate your way through such an immense amount of material to create your works? It's just, to me, I'm struck by the vastness of the source material and, and all the things that you're, you're attempting to integrate. You know, obviously, time is the ultimate decider. You know, like I'm, I have kind of a maybe a nonlinear entry point into to the work, you know, like really it's just based on things I'm interested in at the time or reading or looking through. And then, you know, whether it's sound, images, like you mentioned, you know, a lot of the the, the content is like um, archival and found imagery or, uh, you know. So normally I fall into rabbit holes. I think the true and functional really was like a homage to that, you know, like this idea of the internet rabbit hole where like, mm. you know, I, you know, I have this maybe nostalgia for like pre-social media internet where it was just like discovery and you find mm -hmm. one thing, uh, one website and then you'd click a link and it'd take you somewhere else. Or even just everyone knows the Wikipedia kind of like rabbit hole um, some of us might follow, uh, go down. And so in a way, it's kind of a nod to that process. So, you know, like each page, if you, you look at your functional, it's not dedicated to like one 
concept or one idea necessarily. Sometimes, you know, there might be, for example, I forget the side, you know, it's in volumes with letters. So if you go on it, it's like A to uh, G or H now or something like yeah. that. So yeah, when you go on the, the pages, you know, maybe there's one where it was, um, I was doing a project with the Art Gallery of Ontario for my residency program. And I was looking at the Montgomery collection specifically. And that was about, you know, it's like thousands of photographs from the Caribbean, like archival photographs. And so that might have been more the, a more pointed project or a version of it. Even still, though, mm -hmm. it's kind of still open. Like, I think the whole idea is that the work, not just true and functional, but my practice kind of speaks on this, like, you know, unknowingness of history. And like, again, I always bring up this phrase like nonlinear because it's like, that's mm -hmm. how I, you know, I think about it. Like as me, I'm first generation Canadian. It's like my parents come from Jamaica and then we all, and we know the, the history of that. And then we come from Africa and then there's so much lost history in the middle passage and in all of these things, you know, how we get here. So really the work is to wrestle with that. And then the unknowingness and then the you know, it's incongruent as well in these things. So it's like, you know, in a, in a way on purpose or really referencing this like unknowingness. I'm, I'm hearing you entirely. And I'm wanting to talk a little bit about, even though I know you're kind of going through the material intuitively, but it, in the end you do land on a work. You do bring some intentionality to what you're doing in many ways, acting as a curator of these, of these artifacts of, Black intellectual production. And the impact on the viewer, if I may say, is, is jarring, often provocative sometimes. Sometimes, you know, you'll see Kamal Brathwaite next to, you know, a song that maybe connects in with what he's talking about. Maybe it doesn't. So there's this constant negotiation between your placement of these um, artifacts. I wonder if you could talk about some of the intentionality of who you decide to sort of put in conversation or, you know, whether you're using fabrics or uh, textiles or sound. Walk us through some of your thinking when you're, you're thinking, hey, this would be, you know, cool to put a Coltrane next to a, an image of Kwame Nkrumah or, or something like that. Yeah, you know, I think it's like I've always been a fan of like that, you know, juxtaposition. That's why I, I love collage. You know, I love um, my artist origin stories, like seeing like Nechimutu in uh, AGO in 2008 or nine or, mm -hmm. or something like that. That was my first time really like seeing like a black artist that, that work at that scale before. And, um, you know, for example, what she would do with some of the works, she would talk about like black femininity in a very smart way, but also take things like, you know, maybe clips from pornographic magazine and mm -hmm. a national grid geographic and and put these together right or anatomy pages with like clippings from a magazine and so like i guess my approach kind of thinking about it that way i guess juxtaposing things that maybe we wouldn't immediately think are alike but then you know when you think about the black diaspora and and, and again this is kind of the root of the work when I think of like but it's like bad brains cover with Kamau a speech with Kamau mm -hmm. Brathwaite next to it, I guess I see these connections you know like I see these connections not just as oh these are juxtaposing things that seem opposite but more so the things that make them alike you know so I think of Kamau's work he's one of my favorite poets and then I think about bad mm -hmm. brains and then thinking about their work and maybe the the music and resistance and these types of things. And then I also see the connection in 
Kamau's speeches or, or in his, his poetry, mm-hmm. you know. And then sometimes, too, it's like I'm also thinking through um, to make the obscure not so obscure. So, you know, I think about the people who, you know, there's a wide range of people who come to my work, but there's also, I think about, you know, friends and peers and people around me that work as artists, but also just, you know, people I grew up with and friends. You know, I'm, I, the process for me is self-teaching and research. So I'm going through just reading and digging through archive and on the internet and in the library. And then I stumble across things I think are interesting or maybe historical figures that are not well known in some ways. And right. so my goal is to maybe put it in a, in, on a platform where it gives other people the opportunity to learn. So, you know, there's some tricky things that come with that as well, you know, appropriating an image and... Yeah, you know, with the internet, artists, and and not just artists, but creatives are constantly using the internet as a place to source images, videos. I'm thinking of an artist like Arthur Jaffa's work, who famously, you know, sourced different images. So I'm wondering, what's your take on this question of intellectual property and repurposing, taking, remixing? Is it all sort of fair game now with the internet? Are there rules around this? How as an artist do you enter these conversations around appropriation and repurposing and all of this? Well, you know, like I always say my first, before Mutu, my other entry point, my very beginning entry point is like thinking through music, right? And that's who inspired me is Mm -hmm. like beat makers and DJs and stuff like that. So to me, it's like I always, you know, in a, in a short form, it's I think it's all fair game. And <laughs> that's that's how mm-hmm. I feel about it. I, I You know, I, again, back to the conversation about like early Internet, like my uncle is like a real co- big computer guy. And he showed me essentially everything I know and like how I work. It comes from my time with him and he's a big pirate. <laughs> so like the idea of paying for like a program or something like that is bizarre to me. No, no, no. I don't know if I should say yeah. that publicly, but like, you know, not bizarre, but like, I think there is something very radical and like anti-capitalist about that. Like, I feel like that's what made mm-hmm. the internet beautiful. I think that ironically, you know, we're in a time where it's like be, uh, it's monopolized and, you know, you only have a few companies that we really use mm-hmm. the internet through. But in terms of content, you know, I think there is a gray area. Like, I do believe Mm -hmm. that, you know, one thing I've tried to do is like anything I do reference, I try to have just like how a scholar or writer, theorist or somebody would do. You have your references there for people to to look at, you know. True and functional is a little bit, there's an asterisk on it because, you know, I don't have maybe like all the references on the page. But in gallery and museum, these places, I try to have something available. And even if anyone's interested, they could reach out and I'm happy to provide. But at the same time, I do believe in like, you know, this broader question is like when these things exist online, especially, but not just online, but in any, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like, there's a question around ownership. Like, you know, I thought to myself with Mm -hmm. the AGO Mm -hmm. and the Montgomery collection, it's like, you know, there's a thing that really dawned on me is like, okay, you know, these works are kind of behind the veil of the institution, but how does that look when an artist has access to that and then it's like beyond that, how does that look when the world has access to that? And like who decides, like who owns these things, especially when you're talking about black history that's documented by like non-black people and like colonialists mm-hmm. and like, or, um, you know, different types of institutions have access to these things. But like, 
mm-hmm. we have to kind of go through a red tape to access these things. I think that's kind of one of the motivations behind the way I work is kind of how to disrupt that or like explore that. But then there's also, you know, if I'm taking documentary footage from something and for a video and maybe the documentary filmmaker, they're still alive, maybe it's not that old. Like it does raise a question on like, okay, permission, like artistic integrity as well uh, is something that opens up. But I think, you know, kind of conclude that the thought is like, I feel like it sometimes is a case by case basis. And for me, Mm-hmm. I consider myself someone who's also learning. So it's like if I encounter an issue, I'm always open to address that and um, adjust the work if needed. But at the same time, you know, you remember like beat makers used to like find like rare samples and the idea is like you don't tell oh, people yes. the samples that you use. They, it's their job to find it or figure it out. So like I also think yeah. about that. <laughs> You work through an intense research-driven process. What is it that draws you to research and archives in particular? I think, you know, I was 10 years old when 9-11 happened and it's like this big like global moment. And I think that was when I became like aware of like geopolitics and these kind of things like around that age, right? You're, you're talking about war in Iraq and Afghanistan and you have like these like you know, like you couldn't really escape it on television in a way, right? All the grown-ups were watching it. My dad loved news and CNN and economics and these things. And my mom watched a lot of TV. <laughs> Early on, I was drawn to like, you know, political, like geopolitics in a way. And then I think, and, and through my practice, I had realized, like, I feel like I always felt that like in terms of Black culture and like Black, not academia, but like what we learn in Black history, especially in Canada, like I felt like that Black political history is not very touched on, not in a nuanced way. It's really just phrased, framed in maybe mm-hmm. civil rights in America struggle or something like that, really just solely that. And so maybe you learn a little bit about apartheid or something like in, in, in South Africa. So I think for me, and I was always just interested in history or it became as I grew up, like through history and stuff like that, I felt like through my practice is where I learned how to or is through my practice is like an opportunity for me to kind of um, share some of like the historical moments and kind of black diaspora, but like also just as a student, I'm not an expert, right? Yeah. So I'm just sharing right. what I'm coming across and there's complicated histories there as well, right? So some of the figures that appear in the work can be controversial figures in one way or another. Or Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. How would you describe your work? Would you describe your work as collage, assemblages, installation. When people say, ask you to describe the work, what terms do you pull on? Mm, I don't know, you know. I really list out, like, I I do, like, video, (laughs) (laughs) installation, (laughs) image making. Everything. Everything, yeah. Yeah, Like, I used to, you know, uh, I used to paint, really. Like, you know, this big thing. I I used to, like, paint and do street art, too, and a lot of things. Mm -hmm. There's probably not a medium I haven't really kind of really dove into but i think yeah assemblage is a good way mm-hmm. to describe it because in all forms whether it's an image image making or video or sound that's kind of what i'm i'm doing right taking right. disparate parts and pulling them, pulling together. them together yeah yeah let's turn back to music for a second and art so jean-michel basquet was famously influenced by early hip-hop 
from which he borrowed the notion of or notions of sampling, mixing, uh, even scratching. He would, you know, scratch images off of his canvas to, in many ways, bring attention to what he has scratched, just like a DJ. So he brought all of this into his paintings. And, and I know you take up similar ideas in your work. And I wondered how you were introduced to them, this idea of the DJ or sampling. And what's, what's the origin there in terms of coming into using the sonic visually? Well, you know, like, you know, as young as like 16, I had like a cracked version of Fruity Loops <laughs> and I was making okay. beats. I wish I could okay. find these beats. They're so bad probably, but like I had <laughs> these beats and, you know, I was always like into like art and stuff and then doing that. And then, you know, you fast forward I, I, I and around like 2009, I got used my OSAP money. I bought, a, I bought a mixer and two turntables because I was so convinced like, all right, I'm going to DJ and this yeah. and that. And it was kind of this weird time, I guess, where it was a transition from vinyl to CDJ. And I didn't know much, right? So I had this, I have this, I still have the mixer in my studio. I actually use it to this day, but the turntables. But really, it was very quite simple. Like, you know, I was in my undergraduate, I'm doing art for fun and then also mm -hmm. music for fun. I had Ableton at the time and I'm doing this DJ thing in my room. I'm really just making mixes with vinyl, right? Bounce like the few mm -hmm. vinyl I had. But then it's very, you know, to be honest, it was like music was the cost was prohibitive, you know, like to buy vinyl as a to DJ. Anyway, at the time, this is how I thought I was like, I need to either buy vinyl, I need to buy all this stuff versus like paper and pencil, like paper and a pencil is free. Like I could just <laughs> do that and share that. So yeah. I always say there is a branch around that time where it was like I ended up just taking the energy I had you know, for music and stuff, that exploration, just put it more into words art. And then, you know, I went on to do like a lot of painting, collage work. I was doing like street art and stuff kind of quietly, but with my friends. But I'd mm -hmm. always made music. Like there's a few, like Aaron Jones, one of my good friends, the artist, he based here. And like he, him and like my friend Philmon are the only people I'd always make these mixtapes of my own beats and I'd send them for years, I'd just send them. And then I'd also hide the songs maybe in video art that I would do. And then it was just kind of natural. Like, I guess when I say it out loud, it's like I always was making sound and then art. But then right. I kind of found this perfect kind of, with through video art, this ability to blend Connection. them. Yeah. Now it's like I, there's not really a hierarchy between the works. Now sometimes right. I'll just do sound in the studio yeah. all day, really. You mentioned your friends, and I'm, I'm getting the sense of the, the people who were part of your coming into this awareness of, of your art and, and your art making. I want to talk about BAU, or the Black Artists Union, for a minute, because mm -hmm. I know you were a co-founder of that group. Would it be, what, seven, eight years ago? Yeah, well, 2016 was our first show, or 15 okay. or 16, 16. Yeah. Tell me about, is it BAU? Both Black Artists Union and BAU. Yeah, yeah, tell me about it and what you hope to achieve through the forming of it. And then I'm curious to know if it's still in existence, if if that work continues. Well, in terms of, I'll start with the for in existence. I would say, yes, we are, but we're also on like, you know, a pause. But there has been like, you know, semi 
recent um, activity with some of the groups. It's a large group, right? But we're also mm-hmm. like a band in a way, I guess, you know? Right. So it's like sometimes we need like maybe a pause and people go and do their own thing. But yeah, like, you know, in 2016, myself and some of the other members, we had studio in Kensington Market for mm-hmm. years. We were there working there for years. Uh, the studio, White House Studios, it was like 20 artists in there. And I, we had like these small ass cubicles, like tiny <laughs> cubicles <laughs> and we were working in. Someone I know, um, an older artist, he had mentioned like, you know, he's like, I see you guys working all over the place, but like separately, you know, and like not together. Like it would be amazing to see you guys like do something as like a cooperative kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. that kind of sparked an idea where we ended up doing, you know, we just uh, would link up at the studio, you know, half of us were already there. And then I had invited like Areka James, who's an amazing artist and Krisha Wright, who... I, I don't, I think they might've had studio already or shortly after they ended up getting studio there. And then we, yeah, we started like this like small group of like seven artists. And I think the idea was quite simple. It was just like a lot of us were young, energetic, you know, had great ideas, but just didn't really, you know, there's not really many spaces to show. Like some of us were maybe, right. or some of them were in OCAD and maybe show through OCAD or something like that. But you know, I, I guess the idea is like if we work collectively, there you know, there's more um, resources to share. So we did our first show in Kensington Market and it was, I guess, the beginning of like a lot of attention for the group. And I think through through the process of BAU is like, I, at least for me, I can only speak for me. There's so many of us, you know, it grew into like mm-hmm. 12, 13 people and then the people affiliated around the group. So we've, you know, dealt with so many artists and you know, it went from being us showing as group shows to wanting to do things that were wider than just us uh, mm-hmm. as a nod to the name Union. So we wanted to work with other artists. So around 2018, we had received some funding with the Youth Opportunity Fund and we were working with Whippersnapper Gallery, which is just at the bottom of like on Dundas there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Anique Jordan, who was working there at the time, who's a big supporter of like all of our practice, was one of the people that brought us in to that project. And so through that project, we did like curatorial projects. We did uh, video, like film screenings, like short film screenings. You, you know, we did a lot of like amazing things through the group. Like, you know, we mm-hmm. had a lot of momentum, you know, again, what I was going to say earlier, like speaking for myself, I think, you know, that we would meet every week, if not more than that. And we were always all together anyway. So like, I think for me anyway, it was like, the you know, what art school would be for a lot of people. Like that to me was yeah. like art school. Like we would exchange ideas, readings. Like, right. you know, you'd be surprised how sometimes little art <laughs> we would be talking about within the group. <laughs> everything, everything but Everything art. <laughs> but, but like at the same time, I, I felt like that was like, I would look back with a lot of fondness because of the time, you know, at the time it's like stressful because you're doing so many things and you don't have yeah. resources and, um, you're a bit younger, but like, yeah, I think like for me is like, not just like the the work and the yeah. art part, but like the friendships and the, the relationships. relationships and stuff. Like, yeah, it's a beautiful kind of work. And I always encourage younger artists that, that maybe, you know, oftentimes you're looking for yourself, like, how do I get yeah. into this or that? But sometimes you need to pull in the people around you and start something with each other, even if it's modest, you know? Yeah, we spoke with Anik, and I'm always struck by Anik's commitment to working in collaboration and thinking about community. Are they tough to keep going, though? 
collectives? Like over time, the energy that you use to get them going, I'm just, I'm wondering about sustainability. What What's your um, experience been in terms of keeping them going, a collective? Yeah, you know, it's sustainability, but, you know, to be fair, like COVID was a one big like thing that kind of shook mm-hmm. up the whole thing for the world, obviously. So mm-hmm. we went from meeting every week to not, meeting at all because of covid so like you know naturally that kind of maybe affects things a bit yeah. and again i can only you know there's so many of us i'm only speaking sure. from tim's perspective yeah. but um yeah it's it's not easy but i think that was kind of like that was for me like the growing process like learning how to you know again like when we started with seven it was just like seven of us and you know then it grows mm-hmm. and then you have everyone has their own personalities their own goals Mm -hmm. you know and like i don't know there's not many scenarios at least i had in life to like learn how to like navigate all of that and like also not as just an artist but like you're we're coming as an organizer a curator something like that and like learning how to like the artist needs versus what your needs are as like an organizer and like learning how to balance that and it's not easy at all it's like very it can be very difficult at times and sometimes there's things that aren't reconcilable right but again i don't know if uh, people pay a lot of money to go learn something like that that we did like (laughs) together you know so i learned how to like do accounting through (laughs) through through the group you know and like making newsletters and things like that and even speaking with strangers and stuff you know through the group so tell me about your show at uh, oakville galleries right now collapse and incompletion i believe this is your first solo tell me if i get this right your first solo exhibition in a public gallery you've obviously shown at cooper cole and other commercial galleries but I i think this is your first public gallery solo exhibition you know what before this was, uh, I did a show, Basic Instructions, before leaving everything at A Space Gallery, 401 Richmond. Oh, okay. This show, uh, curated by Sarah Ty Black, and that show um, was a COVID baby. So it happened during COVID and closed and reopened and closed again. Okay. That show just had, was all video, actually. I mm-hmm. will say, though, is that Oakville is my first museum show. So Okay. Yeah. Tell me about it. This was also a show that got affected by the pandemic. It was supposed to happen maybe in 21 or 22. I don't remember, but it worked out. Mm -hmm. I had more time to kind of think about it and develop some ideas. I think the best way to describe the exhibition is it's um, kind of a culmination of maybe the ideas I've had since 2019, maybe like this, you know, ideas Mm -hmm. around a lot of what we're talking about, assemblage, but sound. So the the title mm-hmm. collapse and incompletion. Two sources at the beginning of um, Catherine McKittrick's uh, Dear Science. There's like a in the introduction. There's like a sub. I don't even know what to call that, but it's like a section and just called collapse. And then you know this is just me reading. So I'm looking at this and I'm reading this other book by uh, author uh, Michael E. Veal about dub in Jamaica and the history of dub music. And there's um, uh, also a section called incompletion and collapse. And basically, like, I just, you know, I was thinking about this idea of not just like socially collapse and like incompletion, this kind of thing. But like in Michael Eville's book, he talks about just really the like dub and the practice of collapsing the track or 
experiences of incompletion, you know, vocals that come in mm-hmm. and out or bass that comes in and then drops out. And I was thinking about sound. And so when you go to Oakville Gallery, it's a beautiful gallery, you know, in the, in the house by the water. Mm-hmm. And you go in there and there's a, a series of um, prints and a video and a sculpture that's in the, the exhibition. And so one thing that you you see with the, especially the images, there's this like repeating thing that I do. So I kind of have this array of like, so I'll take the image and like chop it up and like repeat it. Mm-hmm. And so I guess this is kind of my nod to like this thing. Like it's like, you know, the works are finished, you know, when you see them, they're finished because of the frame. The frame makes them feel finished, right. but it's like this sense that almost even the image would come off of the page or like there's this, I think of it like echo or reverb or something like that. Yeah. These like stages of repetition that maybe fade out or fade in or like loops. I think a lot about loops and repetition. So like when I'm in the studio and I'm making sound, it's like, how do I take maybe five seconds of maybe even a 15 minute song and then you flip it and then loop it. That's like a simple way of saying it, but like, this is what I would do. So I'm, I'm kind of finding this, you know, when you see, if you're to see the show, it really is focusing more so on this process of collapse and incompletion of reverb and echoing. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of like the basis of it. Yeah. And what are you working on now? And, and is there anything upcoming that you'd like to discuss in your practice? Right now, so I'm working, I'm still working on uh, the newest edition of True and Functional. So mm-hmm. I'm going through just a, some tech and creative issues a little bit on one side, just like troubleshooting. I, <laughs> it looks great now, but it just doesn't fully work. But I'm, I'm, it's uh, the new edi- newest edition, edition I. It's kind of like a redesign, actually. So I've been working with some cool. designers and stuff, and we're working on that. And yeah, and hopefully we solve some of these issues. And then uh, next year, I'll have a book that will kind of culminate the Oakville project that will come out next year. And in, as for exhibitions, um, I'll be showing in Montreal at Center Clark in September. So I need to just have a few <laughs> weeks to sort out what I'm doing. So, <laughs> you know, probably after this, I'm in the studio. Busy time. Yeah, it's quite busy. There might be some other things I'm forgetting too, but, you know, those are the main. Yeah, going back to True and Functional for a minute, I, I was amazed at the complexity of the site in terms of how you can navigate it uh, going through the visuals and then of course you have the embedded sound clips and so you're working with a team of developers I I was thinking how does Tim do this like on the back end well I do it myself actually the site is myself all by myself at least so far you know to be honest the way it started was like a you you see how it's like a b and so a b c and so forth it started with a b as a reference to records it actually started because i wanted to do a mixtape and i just didn't want to put Uh, it on youtube b side ah exactly so i started a side b side and then after after putting out the first two i was just like asking myself why would i limit myself to a physical restriction these are physical problems right. like a and b you only have two sides right 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 <laughs> so i was yeah. just like oh this thing could go forever technically so i just right. kind of continued going and so my thought has always been is like maybe 
it will be amazing to see how it changes as you would go. And like, you know, mm. who knows, maybe by the time it's Z, maybe it's just a film that's on like a full feature film on one side, right? Or maybe mm. one track, or maybe it's a video game. I don't know. So basically right. my whole idea is that with this redesign is kind of rethinking maybe um, how it feels. It doesn't feel much different than it kind of okay. takes on the same philosophy as the uh the other pages with the designers there's more flexibility in terms of like you know mm -hmm. um I, i have only so much skill really <laughs> the designer <Right. laughs> yeah so we like to ask guests on the podcast to both answer questions posed by other artists and then also to pose questions for uh subsequent artists so i'd like to ask you a question that was shared recently and the question is what is the story that you encountered in your life that changed you the most wow i guess like i grew up with my grandmother <laughs> you know it's an interesting way to say encounter because these you know grandmothers or grandparents they would tell you the same stories over and over again but sometimes yeah, right. you don't understand them until a certain key point in life Yes. And, you know, I think a couple of years ago, maybe 2019, she would just tell me about just, you know, the story, her story of coming over and then sending for all of my, my mom and them and everybody to come mm -hmm. and how like these, these ladies at the government office are telling her about welfare. She never heard about this thing before and all of these things. And, and you know, just telling me, I guess just the story I guess the story of her coming here by herself mm -hmm. and then managing to get everybody over and still managing to take care as best as she could. I think those stories to me, that story in particular is the one that in my later, you know, being almost 30, like when learning, mm -hmm. hearing that at this stage of her life was probably the most impactful. Maybe um, one day will you take up the story of that, immigration story directly in your work if you haven't already i think so i'm i'm in this place now where it's like you know i always like you know maybe this is the whole point of the work and why i kind of work the way i do is a way to kind of speak to this that story and maybe a more abstract way and like yeah maybe mm -hmm. there's a more pointed like personal story there i'm always mm -hmm. careful about that though i guess bringing the very personal into public space i guess right how right. to do it in a way where no one would get mad at me so <laughs> i got a big fam <laughs> so actually that's interesting because you know i like to think of you you know working through a research driven practice but i'm sure in that research you're also unveiling or encountering very personal connections in with those materials so how how personal is the work versus and maybe it's it's not right to say versus, but how personal is the work in contrast to, you know, this idea of going into an archive and and encountering secondary sources and, and this sort of thing? Do you see the work as, as being very personal? Yes and no. Like I do mm -hmm. acknowledge there's a compartmentalization of it for me. Like, you know, there's personal and political, but we all know that those things are also inherently linked. So right. in a way, right. yes, like one thing I'll say, this is back to the Oakville show. In the Oakville show, there's two pieces called Politics versus Economics. Mm -hmm. And at the Cooper Cole show I had, there's a long hanging piece 
Untitled Loop One. And these were actually scans from of Jamaican politicians that kind of collaged up from a book called Politics Versus Economics, a very dry sociology book about the, the, uh, the elections in Jamaica around like from the 70s to 89. So I have this right. book that I was reading. But this book kind of comes from this book comes from a barrel that my grandmother had because she wanted desperately to go back to Jamaica to re- just to give away stuff, you know, like this. I want to go right. open the shop again and sell things, which never happened. But we had to clear these things up. I guess you know, with all that said, you know, like I, I've had this book and I'll reference it and I'll take scans and I'll remake things from this this old kind of textbook. But yeah, in a way, it, it's personal to me because there's a personal story to the object of the right. book and then also another layer is like my dad and them are big like you know in jamaica there's the two parties the jlp and the pnp and my dad and them are big pnp i'd hear them like arguing late at night yelling at each mm-hmm. other about all these politics things i didn't experience and so in a way i'm like maybe trying to con- i'm connecting with those like personal moments like they still do this to this day right and so yeah. I don't know. I guess it's like, it's a yes and no, you know, I was about to say maybe they're separate, but in a way, like there's this deeply personal thing, but I'm also a careful and private type of person in reality. So I'm very careful about how I bring in the personal into space and stuff, especially if it's not me, you know, so. But that's fascinating how these personal moments or objects are sort of reverberating through the work explicitly implicitly you know tacitly you know but it they're in there as you've just described which is really neat i wondered if we can get you to now ask a question about anything that we can pose to a later guest on the show it can be about absolutely anything i had this my cousin and i was in brooklyn a few months ago and he asked me this and i still don't have a answer but it this is my one (laughs) Mm-hmm. What was the best piece of advice you've ever received and who told you? Oh, nice. Awesome. You're still you're still thinking about yeah, that? Yeah, I don't remember. My memory <laughs> might be as much <laughs> my memory might be terrible because I'm like, oh, I wonder like like who I I'm still thinking about it. I'm still thinking about it. Yeah. Tim, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Neil. Yeah, it was wonderful. Intention, presented by the Power Plant Contemporary Art Gallery, is made possible with the support of Canada Council for the Arts. We thank the diverse mix of Canadian contemporary artists for sharing more about their lives and work. This episode was hosted and created by Neil Price in collaboration with the Power Plant Contemporary Art Gallery team, Beverly Cheng, Daria Sposobna, and Zachary Skola-Allison. This show was produced by the team at Edit Audio. This episode was edited, mixed, and mastered by Ali Sirwa. Our executive producer is Steph Colburn, and our production manager is Kathleen Speckert. Show music is by No Cliché and Mopawa Mumu. <laughs> <laughs>